Now let us heed the word of God. Lord willing, I shall be bringing you six messages altogether until I leave your midst, four of which will be on the subject of uh, Melchizedek. Uh, I shall endeavor to discuss everything that the word of God says about that remarkable person, Melchizedek. Mindful of that, let us read God's word from Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. Now it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admar, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. All these were joined together in the Vale of Sidim, which is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Kedileomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year came Kedileomer and the kings that were with him, and smote the Rephaims in Ashtarot Karnaim, and the Zuzims in Ham, and the Emims in Shaver Kiryataim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir unto El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they returned and came to Ain Mishpat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazon Tamar. Now there went out the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela. The same is Zoar. And they joined battle with them in the vale of Sidim, with Kedileomer, the king of Elam, and with Tidal, king of the nations, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elassar, four kings with five. And the vale of Sidim was full of slime pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountain. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their victuals, and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. Then there came someone who had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he was dwelling in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and these were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother had been taken captive, he armed his trained servants born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. Then he brought back all the goods, and also brought back his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Kedileomer, and of the kings that were with him at the vale of Shaveh, 
which is the Kingsdale. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham by the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave Melchizedek tithes of everything. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Then Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from one thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and hide it in their hearts. Someone asked me when I came in tonight, would I take questions tonight? And I said, let's rather postpone the questions until Friday. Uh, the reason being that many questions that you might ask tonight will, I think, be answered tomorrow night uh, or Friday night. Uh, tonight, I want to adhere strictly to the passage which has just been read to you, although, where necessary, I will draw lines from it to the later teaching of the Bible about Melchizedek, and uh, I'm sure I don't need to remind you that other parts of the Bible very clearly state that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is a priest and a king, and by implication also a prophet, forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So, by studying the life of Melchizedek, which we're going to be doing tonight especially, we're going to learn a great deal about the Lord Jesus Christ, who in many respects is similar to Melchizedek. Indeed, Melchizedek, through what he did, points us forward to what the Lord Jesus Christ has done and whom he is. But it seems to me the best possible way of presenting these four sermons on the subject of Melchizedek, uh, what the totality of Scripture says about that person, would be to deal with the matter chronologically. And so for that reason, um, I will start at uh, verse 1 and explain as we go along. Now the holy writer, probably Moses, though uh, quite possibly also Abram himself, long before Moses, wrote down this account under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And uh, the holy writer tells us that it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasa, Kedaleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these kings made war against other kings. The kings first mentioned in verse 1 uh, were obviously well known enough at the time when the first account of these happenings was written down so as uh, to be identified um, by the reader. And the list of the kings that came to attack the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and others are headed up with the name of Amraphel, uh, the king of Shinar. Uh, Shinar, of course, is the name of the valley 
uh, in Babylonia where the Tower of Babel had previously been built and destroyed. Um, perhaps we can conclude from this that this coalition of kings who moved eastbound uh, to where the land of uh, Israel and Jordan and Lebanon uh, now are um, represented a coalition of the most powerful kings then known on earth uh, even after the destruction of the Tower of Babel. And indeed, these kings are rapacious people. Uh, they are people who do not hesitate to make an international coalition with one another and to beat up on smaller nations. Um, they are powerful kings uh, for no apparent reason. They attack the smaller kings with the intention, as we shall see, of looting them, both their persons and their possessions, making off with them, enslaving them, and subjugating them in terms of treaty alliances so that the conquered are to be the vassals and the servants of the conquerors. All that needs to be said because this passage of Scripture is going to introduce Melchizedek as a real person who arrives on the scene in the middle of life the way it is. Perhaps we can... Um, imagine um, that the appearance of Melchizedek on this scene of warfare might be somewhat similar to a powerful person and a peacemaker at that suddenly arriving on the scene in Kosovo today uh, when many nations find themselves at one another's throats. Not only Serbs and uh, Albanians uh, and Kosovo people uh, and Macedonians and Bosnians to the north just chomping at the bit to get involved in the action, but 14 nations of NATO uh, under the commander-in-chiefship of uh, Mr. Bill Clinton uh, and his administration. I cannot say the United States because Congress has not declared war as required by the United States Constitution. So um, what we have here then uh, in the passage that we're talking about is a similar breach of international law as we are now witnessing in southeastern uh, uh, Europe. And therefore, it is extremely relevant for the world situation in which we now find ourselves plunged by unscrupulous politicians uh, belonging to various nations. And the question must arise in our hearts as we survey the situation that we uh, get related to us, indeed bombarded by, every day in the newspaper and on the TV, is where is justice in this, and does God really care about uh, human suffering? And that's an appropriate question for us to ask. And the answer is, yes, God does care, and that great high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the great prophet, priest, and king, is intimately concerned with the events of this world here and now. Our Lord Jesus doesn't just arrive on the scene to promise us a, a pie in the sky by and by, uh, but to enmesh and incarnate himself into the warp and woof of everyday life your life and my life, and the lives of the nations in this world here and now. Now you may say that these aggressor kings mentioned in verse 1, this coalition of mighty kings, let's call them the NATO kings because they have more hardware and uh, armament than the people whom they attack uh, and who have to defend themselves uh, in this unprovoked war. Uh, that they are justified in hammering the daylights out of the kings whom they attack. Because look at verse 2. These kings from the east, the powerful kings, made war with Berah, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah. And I don't have to tell you that Sodom and Gomorrah were not very nice places. 
they were well known for their sexual perversions and their violence in ancient times. Lot, Abraham's nephew, made the mistake of um, separating himself from Abraham and settling in Sodom, a place where he should not have gone to live. But he did, because the grass of this world quite literally looked greener there than it did in the more barren-looking country to the west where Abraham was to reside. They made king, they made war against the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, uh, two of the worst cities that the world has ever known, and our modern word sodomite, meaning a male homosexual, is derived from Sodom because that sin was so horribly prevalent in Sodom in ancient times, as is related a little later in God's holy word in Genesis 15. So one may say, well, there were just a bunch of sodomites and uh, sexual perverts, so why shouldn't the mightiest nations in the world combine and beat the daylights out of them? Well, the answer to that is, it was still a breach of international law for these people to be attacked. They had no word from God to do this. And, of course, their motive in uh, attacking the sodomites and the people of Gomorrah uh, was not to punish them for their evil sins, uh, but indeed to rob them of their possessions, of their womenfolk, and indeed even to enslave, bring into a situation of economic servitude the uh, weaker nations whom they were attacking. Is God interested in situations like that that erupt in our world of today? Does God really care about clashes between nations today? Uh, Some of the ethical aspects of which are indeed very complicated, and the answer is yes. God cares just as much as Melchizedek, who is a signpost who points us to Jesus and who in many respects resembled Jesus, shows us that God cares by Melchizedek arriving on the scene a little later in this narrative. And so perhaps we can expect a visitation from heaven not long after today's shenanigans, and I don't mean the return of Jesus on the clouds from heaven, but I mean an interference of the God in heaven into the affairs of nations to shake them up because of breaches of international law and indeed the law of God which we are witnessing today in many parts of the world and the church is strangely silent as God's people are being drugged by the garbage that they are being fed on TV and in the newspaper about the events of the day instead of evaluating these events in terms of God's standard, the Ten Commandments, which is his holy law for all peoples, of all races, of all religions, for all time. Well now, the strong kings attack the smaller kings, attack the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and also the king of Admah and Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Soar, all of them places which Holy Scripture later, particularly in the prophecies of Hosea, condemn as being not very nice people. It says then that uh, all of these armies of the powerful nations from the east and the weaker nations from the west were joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim, which is the Salt Sea. It would seem that at that time still what is now the Salt Sea, the Bacharlut, the the Dead Sea, uh, was still... Um, dry land, or at least most of it was, prior to God's later destruction of Sodom. And there, toward the south of what is now the Dead Sea, this battle took place. It seems quite clear from verse 4 that the result of that battle was that the kings from the east, the powerful kings, prevailed and subjugated the conquered kings and forced them to comply with the terms of the settlement. 
in the same way that at the moment the Clinton administration and its NATO allies feel that they are going to bring Serbia to her knees and force Serbia to comply to the terms that will be laid down in respect of who should live in Kosovo and who should not. And already we're hearing about um, uh, reparations and trials for war criminals. I would only say to that, let's put everyone on trial who's a war criminal and a, a criminal of breaking the other commandments of God, no matter how powerful any leader in the world may be. Uh, because God's law is above all nations and no leader of a powerful or a weak country can think that he can elevate himself above God's law and get away with it in the long run. It cannot be done. God is patient, but God notes and God intervenes in history to bring judgment upon leaders and also upon the people that follow them. Well now, as a result of this first clash between the powerful kings of the East and the weaker kings of the West, the weaker kings of the West were reduced unto servitude, uh, and for 12 years long, they had to serve Kedaleomer, the leader, or one of the leaders of the coalition that came against them from the Babylonian coalition. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. They wanted to regain their freedom. They had not freely entered into a treaty uh, with uh, those who had conquered them. They had been forced to negotiate on unequal terms. So, when they later got their opportunity, they rebelled. However, might is right in the opinion of the Babylonians, and so after the ground troops had been assembled in the 14th year, Kedaleomer, with the uh, more powerful Eastern Alliance, came again to attack the kings of the West. In the 14th year, Kedaleomer and the kings that were with him came and they smote the Rephaims in Ashtarot Karnaim and the Zuzims in Ham and the Emims in Shaver Kiryataim and the Horites in their mountain Seir, the whole territory uh, comprising that which is now Western Jordan, uh, Israel, and uh, right down uh, to the um, um, to um, the southernmost parts of what is now Israel and Jordan were all spifflicated by this war machine that came at them from the east. And uh, while this was going on, the king of Sodom got very brave, and the king of Gomorrah and his coalition went out to defend their territory that was under attack, and they joined the battle against the stronger alliance in the valley of Sidim. And we're also told that together with Kedilomer, the king of Elam, uh, and with Tidal, the king of nations, there was also Amraphel, king of Shinar, king of Babylon. Many archaeologists consider this uh, Amraphel to be the same person as Hammurabi, including Sir Leonard Woolley, who of course, as you know, excavated Ur of the Chaldees earlier this century. He felt that that was Hammurabi, Hammurabi himself who invented a law, co a law co code which challenged that of Moses uh, at a later time was involved in this fight. Well now, without going into too much unnecessary detail for the purpose of uh, tracing the background which produced Melchizedek, uh, the valley of Sidim where the fight took place was full of potholes, slimy potholes that were difficult to get out of if anyone fell into them. And we're told that by God's providence, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and they fell into the potholes and they couldn't get out and all the other people, their allies who remained, they took off and they fled to the mountains. But then we are told that the winning team, or what at that stage seemed to be the winning team, the coalition from the east, took or captured all of the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all of their victuals, everything they uh, needed 
in order to be able to live. They stole their food. Uh, they stole their um, means of livelihood, no doubt including their cattle. Uh, and they went on their way, and indeed they took with them as a prisoner of war Lot, who was Abraham's brother's son. Lot, who had gone to dwell in Sodom, and they also took Lot's goods with them, and they departed. Now that was a colossal mistake that the powerful coalition of kings made, they touched a relative of Abraham who was God's anointed at that time. And some of the people who lost that battle escaped and they told Abram the Hebrew because Abraham was then dwelling in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and the brother of Anah. Abram was dwelling in peace uh, with uh, other leaders of the original tribes of Palestine. And very interestingly, we are told at the end of verse 13, and these three, namely Mamre, Eshcol, and Anner, and all of their, the men under their command, they were confederate with Abram. Very interesting statement. They were confederate with Abraham. Now, without arguing the merits of the war between the states uh, at this point, though I think there is some implication uh, to that even in this verse, let me say that confederate means not just to be in coalition with, it means to be in covenant with. So, these three men and their households were under covenantal oath bound to go to the aid of Abraham and Abraham's allies such as uh, Lot whenever they were attacked. And they did so for they were honorable people who honored that alliance. To the shame of the United Kingdom of Great Britain, it betrayed its oldest ally, Portugal, uh, with whom it was at peace and had a defense treaty for five or six hundred years, when Indian imperialism under the socialist Pandit Nehru rapaciously grabbed, stole, and forcibly incorporated the Portuguese colony of Goa in the Indian subcontinent against the wishes of the inhabitants. And Britain did nothing to go to the aid of Portugal, though Portugal said, hey, remember our joint defense pact, because today people enter into alliances and break them uh, almost at will. Uh, today people and uh, political leaders often act dishonorably, but that was not the case with the people of God in ancient times. Abraham put his allies, uh, his confederates on notice that his own nephew had been attacked and carried off into ca captivity, he reminded them of their joint treaty obligations and these Palestinian uh, tribes and their leaders honored their obligation with Abraham. And I could say further that Abraham expected them to honor their obligations and Abram in turn honored his obligation his covenantal obligation to protect his own nephew, Lot, and his household because they had entered into covenant with one another to protect one another. And Abram did something about the situation because Abraham was already in covenant with Almighty God and Abraham knew that parties involved in a covenant keep the terms of the contract. The great thing about God, of course, is he always keeps his covenant. Um, God is still keeping the covenant that he made with our first forefather, uh, Adam. Adam broke his covenant with God by entering into an iniquitous covenant with Satan and against God. And men are often like that. But God cannot deny himself. God knew that he was bound by the terms of his covenant with Adam against Satan to go to the aid of 
Adam, even after Adam had treacherously betrayed his covenant with God and entered into a fresh covenant or coalition with Satan against Jehovah. Or as St. Paul puts it, if, um, if we become unfaithful, God still keeps on remaining faithful because he cannot deny himself. We can deny ourselves. Sadly, we often do deny our covenantal obligations to God. But God is incapable of not rising to our defense when his covenant with us is threatened. And even when it's threatened by ourselves. Praise God for the faithfulness of himself. And Abraham at this point himself reflects sufficient faithfulness towards his covenantal allies and towards uh, his nephew uh, Lot because Abraham knows that God has always treated Abraham faithfully in covenant. Abram could have said, you know, this Lot really has been a disappointment to me. I mean, he's younger than I am. And uh, I said to him, look Lot, uh, if you want to go uh, this away, I'll go that away. If you want to go that away, I'll go this away. And Lot was rather greedy, and he grabbed what he thought was the better portion of land. And Abraham, the elder man, says, All right, if that's what you want, so be it. At this point, Abram could have said, Well, Lot wanted to go live in Sodom. Serves him right. Lot and all of the Sodomites have been taken into captivity by the Eastern Coalition. Why should I care? But that was not the type of man that Abraham was by the grace of God. The New Testament says Abraham is the father of all believers. And if we are Christ's, then are we children of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. From this let us learn that as Christians we keep our obligations, national International, we keep our contracts of sale and of purchase because that is the right and the godly thing for us to do rather than to rip off other people at our own expense. Well now, when Abraham heard what had happened to his brother's son Lot, verse 14, that he had been taken captive, Abraham armed his trained servants. What a wonderful statement that is. The Hebrew word used there is chanekim, uh, which is derived from the verb chanak, which means to catechize, from which the proper noun uh, chanok or enoch is derived. If you wonder how come Enoch walked with God, the answer is simple. His parents catechized him. The word Enoch means the one who was well catechized. And so from this precious verse, uh, verse 14, we see that Abraham had catechized his servants. They're called trained servants in the King James, but the real meaning of the word trained there is those that had been catechized. And indeed a little later in uh, Genesis uh, 18 and verse 17 onward, we are told that um, Abraham um, so pleased God uh, that um, uh, he catechized his entire household. You remember that, uh, that thing, or rather uh, Genesis chapter 17, when God said to Abraham, you shall keep my covenant, Genesis 17 verse 9, Therefore you and your seed after you in their generations. And then the sign of circumcision was instituted. And then in the next chapter, chapter 18 and verse 19, God says about Abraham, I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken to him. Abraham 
catechized not only his own children when they came, but every servant in his household, and probably encouraged the heads of, of his servants' households themselves to catechize their children, so that when the hour of need came, when uh, there was a military need, all Abram had to do was to arm his catechized servants, all 314 of them, for that's the number we're told they were in uh, chapter 17, together with such of their sons as had reached the age to bear arms, and Abraham put them under arms, and Abraham and his fellow covenanters who had been catechized with him, together with his other covenantal allies in Palestine, they pursued the stronger kings all the way to Dan. And Abraham divided himself against them, he and his servants at night, and Abraham smote them, and he pursued them. He wasn't afraid to use ground troops. Uh, when the battle came, he did the job, and he pursued unto victory, as to did Melchizedek. But that's tomorrow night's message from Psalm 110. No half measures with Melchizedek. And Abraham and his allies, verse 16, brought back all of the goods, and they also brought back again his brother Lot, that is his brother's son Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people. And matters did not stop there. At this point, the king of Sodom, quite a miserable person, but nevertheless, he went out to meet Abraham after he came back from the slaughter of Kaoda Laomer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shaveh, which is in the king's dale. And at this point, with the king of Sodom approaching Abraham, and Abraham, no doubt, uh, asking himself what would be the appropriate way to address this wretched man, the king of Sodom, at that point, suddenly, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brings forth bread and wine. Mysteriously, suddenly, this new person arrives on the scene. Let's take a closer look at this. His name is Melchizedek, Melchizedek, which in Hebrew means uh, the righteous king. The righteous king. That is to say, the king who not only uh, does that which is righteous, or wants to do that which is righteous, but the king who has the power to do that which is righteous. In the New Testament, we'll see later this week, that our Savior Jesus Christ is called a king forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For Jesus is a righteous king. He has all the power in heaven and on earth, but he also wields that power righteously. It's one thing to be the President of the United States or the Chairman of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of Red China. Both of those men uh, can muster a fearful amount of might. But the question is whether they know how to wield that power righteously. Our Savior not only has the power to do that which is right, but he is incapable of doing that which is wrong with the power. And I would suggest the same seems to have been the situation, by God's grace, with Melchizedek, who was a signpost, a type, pointing people down through the then future centuries toward the great Savior of the world, uh, the one before whom... Abraham himself would bow down and worship him. Or as Jesus said to the Pharisees, Abraham longed to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. Before Abraham was, I am. Melchizedek, king of righteousness, powerful person, king of Salem, 
brought forth bread and wine. We're told that this Melchizedek was a king of Salem, that is, king of peace. The modern Hebrew word shalom, meaning health, peace, uh, is derived from this more ancient root, Salem. And indeed, Salem seems to be uh, an abbreviation of Jerusalem, so that it certainly seems this Melchizedek was the king of the city of Jerusalem even before the Hebrew people uh, were later awarded Jerusalem and then set up their headquarters there. Was Melchizedek a Hebrew? Uh, possibly, though this is not stated. He may have been a Japhethite. Uh, he might even have been a Hamite, but a, a godly man for all that. Seems to have been some kind of descendant of Noah, unless you take the view, as some do, that Melchizedek was indeed the second person of the Trinity uh, who had come down to earth. But the problem with that view is that we are never told that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate incarnation of Jesus Christ. Uh, and the New Testament does not say that Jesus was Melchizedek, nor that Melchizedek was Jesus, but rather says that Jesus Christ was, is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, which would certainly seem to suggest that Jesus uh, and Melchizedek were not one and the same person. And yet there is something very mysterious about this Melchizedek, this Prince of Righteousness, the King of Jerusalem, uh, because Jerusalem or Salem or Peace, as far as we know archaeologically, seems to have been in the hands of the bad guys at that time, or at any rate, it is not then stated then to have been in the hands of the good guys, and of course the Jebusites uh, later had possession of Jerusalem, and uh, the later Hebrew people, uh, uh, through the, uh, the nation of Israel, drove the Jebusites, at God's command, out of Jerusalem, and then um, set up uh, the headquarters of the Israelites in Jerusalem himself. So it's most mysterious that where there is mention of so many bad kings here, not only the bad coalition that had come from the east, but also the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Admer and the king of Zeboim, all of whom are spoken about in adverse terms in the later prophets, that another person, a king of Salem, of Jerusalem, Salem meaning peace, arises on the scene. The king of Salem, the king of peace, this means that up to this point in time, he had not taken sides in the uh, military conflict that had then erupted in this world here and now between the Eastern Coalition and the weaker Western Coalition. He now arrives on the scene uh, after the hostilities seem to have ceased in the victory of Abraham and his confederates, uh, fighting with the minority against the majority, and what he brings is not more warfare, but peace. He comes forth from the place of peace, Salem, Jerusalem, but he comes forth as a powerful king of righteousness, has the ability to crush everyone there, but in point of fact does not crush anyone there himself after his arrival on the scene. To the contrary, we are told he brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. He brought forth bread and wine. How that should remind us of that greater Melchizedek, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Peace, who, although all power in heaven and earth has been given to him, rather chooses uh, at his table to bring forth bread and wine peacefully to feed his people even in the midst of their uh, earthly struggles. And as we get ready for the Savior's table uh, this uh, Sabbath, coming Sabbath, 
let us see how Melchizedek points us the right way when he comes forth in peace and he brings bread and wine. It raises the question as to whether it's appropriate that a king should bring forth bread and wine rather than the sword. After all, we do believe in separation of powers, and so does the Bible. You remember that a later king, Isaiah, who tried to do the work of the priest, was smitten with leprosy for his trouble. Uh, but not so in respect of Melchizedek. There's something very peculiar about him. He was indeed a king, but he was also a priest. And it is as a priest, surely, but a priest who is also a king, that he brings forth uh, bread and wine. Indeed, we're told he was the priest of the Most High God. Notice it doesn't say Melchizedek was the High God. Uh, and Jesus, of course, was the High God. But Melchizedek is the priest of the High God, the one who serves on behalf of God, the one who conveys the bread and the wine from God to God's people. And he, that is Melchizedek, blessed Abraham. And we'll go into the implications of that blessing at much greater length when we reach what the book of Hebrews has to say about Melchizedek on a subsequent evening. But at this point, let us just notice that um, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And then Melchizedek spoke and said something. And what Melchizedek now says is the very word of God. The word prophet uh, literally means somebody who foretells God's word. It's taken from two Greek words, pro and fermi, which mean to speak forth, namely to speak forth God's word. And I would submit that the fact that God here uses Melchizedek to bring forth a word of God which is inspired shows that Melchizedek was not only a king as stated and a priest as stated, but he was also a prophet which is not stated but which by necessary implication must follow. So, as a prophet then, Melchizedek said, quote, Blessed be Abraham by the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Unquote Melchizedek. That's the word of God. But it's the word of God that came to Abraham through the prophet, priest, king Melchizedek who in those three offices combined in one person in a most singular way in the Old Testament was a wonderful depiction of that greater Melchizedek, that greater prophet, that greater priest, that greater king forever according to the order of Melchizedek, that greater prophet, priest and king, our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what Melchizedek says to Abraham. Blessed be Abraham. Now, as the book of Hebrews points out, one who is greater uh, gives a blessing to the person who is lesser. From this we see that Melchizedek, and particularly the one whom Melchizedek foreshadowed and represented, our Lord Jesus Christ, was greater than Abraham. Think of it, Abraham, the father of all believers, but Melchizedek by blessing Abraham the lesser, uh, being greater even than Abraham, this mysterious figure. Now we begin to understand some of the thrust of what Jesus must have been thinking of when he said to the Pharisees, Before Abraham was, I am. Abraham longed to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. There's a sense in which when Abraham the lesser looked at Melchizedek the greater, God enabled Abraham through Melchizedek to see a prediction, a foreshadowing of Abraham's great saviour who would come only centuries later in the uh, fullness of time. 
Blessed be Abraham by the Most High God, by uh, Elyon, the, the lifted up, the exalted High God, indeed the triune God, by Elohim, not by Allah or Elor, one God, not by Elohim, two gods, but by Elohim, three or more gods, or the triune God, one God in three persons. That is the source of the blessing, the lofty, the exalted one, the one, the triune God, comma, who at the beginning, comma, created the two heavens, Hashemayim, and the one earth, the Ha'aretz, a triune God who creates a triune universe, which reflects even his trinity as a sun is reflected in a mirror. Blessed be the most high God, uh, and blessed be Abraham by the most high God, the most high God, the possessor of the heavens and the, the, and the earth. You see, the most high God is not a deistic God who's remotely removed from the affairs of heaven or the affairs of earth. No, no. God inhabits eternity. Um, God never needed to move into heaven before God created the earth and filled the earth. Um, heaven is a creature of Almighty God. God does not need heaven. It's a fit dwelling place for angels and for the souls of the departed saints. But God was there before there was a heaven. But God controls everything that comes to pass in heaven and everything that comes to pass in earth and everything that had just come to pass in those earthly battles on earth at that time. The God of heaven and earth controls right now all of the misery that is coming to pass in Kosovo and in Belgrade and all of the misery the American people have been put through with this disgraceful impeachment trial and the totally inadequate outcome of it. God sees, God controls and causes in the long haul all of these things to work together for the exaltation and the glorification of his name even when he brings those that transgress his law down into the very dust. And so Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said to him, Blessed be Abraham by the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed too be the Most High God. Now, we cannot make God more blessed than he has always been, yet the Bible tells us that we are to bless God. And Melchizedek blessed God. And Melchizedek here pronounced God to be blessed. And in a sense, Melchizedek himself blessed God and encouraged Abraham, the father of all believers, together with those in coalition and in covenant with Abraham, also to bless God. Blessed be the Most High God, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. He doesn't say, Blessed be the Most High God, who will send His Son, Jesus Christ, to take away your sins, and if you just sign the decision card, Abraham, and honk twice and allege that you love Jesus, that's all that you need to do. This is not the language of Scripture. That's the sordid trail. That's Arminianism. The language here is Calvinistic. What Melchizedek says is this, Abraham, blessed be the Most High God who has delivered your enemies into your hands. We too should bless God, Jehovah Jesus, who has delivered our enemies into our hands. And here is Melchizedek, the forerunner, the signpost, the type of Jesus encouraging us to bless God who has delivered our enemies into our hand. Did Abraham have enemies? Well, no one had attacked him, but because he was an honorable man, because he was bound by treaty to defend Lot, and because his associates, his confederates, were also bound to assist Abraham, to go to the aid of Lot, Abraham had gotten involved in that war. In other words, 
the enemies of Lot were Abraham's enemies because Abraham was in covenant with Lot. And the reason why Abram got involved in that brawl was because he had to fight against his enemies. He had no animosity towards these people he attacked. They had not attacked him. But the terms of his covenant with Lot, who had been kidnapped, required Abraham as a God-loving ethical man to honor his obligations and to regard those people as his enemies who had attacked someone with whom he was in covenant, even though they had not attacked Abram himself. You know, you see what a man of great honor Abraham was, and you compare Abraham with the wishy-washy, spineless louts that lead the nations of the world today, uh, and it's a sad comment on the extent to which today's political leaders, and religious leaders, let me add, uh, try to behave honorably. And then Abraham gave Melchizedek tithes of everything. What a statement. Abram was a tither. Today we see these bumper stickers on cars in front of us. Honk twice if you love Jesus. I've got a better bumper sticker. Quit honking, try tithing. And Abraham tithed. Do we realize what it means when we tithe? It means we regard the Lord God of heaven and earth as the source of all of our income, of all of our health, and therefore religiously, for every dime that we earn or get given as a present, we set one cent aside for Jehovah. It is His money. He's the one that caused our aunt to give us a, a dime or $10 or $100. Let us then immediately give a tenth of that back to the one who brought about the gift that came into our hands. Abraham gave Melchizedek tithes of everything. You remember how Malachi says, uh, God says through Malachi, you people have robbed me. What, says the Israelites? How have we ever robbed you? You have robbed me, says Jehovah, through Malachi, in the tithes and the offerings. We steal from God if we withhold the tithe from him. We break the seventh commandment, thou shalt not steal. And indeed, it's not just stealing from people. Uh, to withhold the tithe is not just to do what the Eastern Coalition did when they stole uh, Lot and his belongings. To steal from God to deprive God of the tithe that he owns, of all of our income, uh, is a far greater degree of theft than to swindle people in war or in shady business deals. Abraham gave Melchizedek tithes of everything. Then the king of Sodom said to Abraham, just give me back the persons, just give me back my people, the Sodomites, and you can take the goods for yourself. What the king of Sodom means, Abraham, I'll tell you what, all the people of my city that have been captured by the coalition of powerful kings that you have now put down, give me back my people. But as far as the goods that were stolen from Sodom, you can keep all of those goods for yourself. But Abraham is a fair man, even when dealing with the king of the Sodomites, from which we should learn to be fair even when we deal with Sodomites. To be sure, Sodomites should be punished for their awful uh, conduct. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pay back money to Sodomites that we might owe them. For, however twisted, they are people created in the image of God. And uh, God doesn't say... Uh, don't steal from nice people, but it's perfectly in order to rip off the sodomites. God says, thou shalt not steal, period. Even if the person from whom you're contemplating stealing is the most morally disreputable person that you can possibly think of. Do you see? Abram is a man who practices the Ten Commandments in his life. He taught the Ten Commandments to his children and to his servants. He catechized them. He taught them the substance of, 
of the, of the shorter catechism. Can I put it to you any simpler than that? Uh, so, Abraham said to the king of Sodom, uh, No, I will not keep all of your goods to myself. He said even to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord. I have commended my life to God. Uh, I belong to God and His law is my law. I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, the Most High God, the One who possesses heaven and earth, that I will not take anything from a thread even to a shoe latchet. Very unimportant and unprecious things, a thread and a shoe latchet, a shoelace, a shoe buckle. I don't even want your thread. I don't even want your shoe latchet, king, uh, king of Sodom. I have also sworn to God that I will not take anything that belongs to you. Yes, you're a disreputable man, but nevertheless the goods of your people belong to you. They're not mine, and they're not mine to keep just because you're contemptible. And I will not keep anything that belongs to you, lest you should then perhaps say and brag, Ah, oh, it is I, the king of the Sodomites, who have made Abraham rich. Abram wouldn't have become rich if it weren't for me. What are we to learn from that? We're to learn from that to be able to live humbly in this world and not to try and grab all things that other people might think we're entitled to from other people of questionable ethics, lest they should later say that we became rich through them. Rather poor with dignity than rich through doubtful belongings and doubtful appropriations. No white water gate here with Abraham. I will not take anything that belongs to you, lest you should say, I, the king of Sodom, have made Abraham rich, except only that which the young men have eaten. These young men are the people that had been catechized, whom Abraham had armed to go to the assistance of Lot, who was living in Sodom, and the other people. Yes, they had eaten food during the military campaign, and somebody's got to pay for the food. And Abram says, it is appropriate, uh, O king of Sodom, that you've got all of your people back in good shape, and all of your, um, your goods back in good shape, but it's appropriate that you do pick up the tab and pay the bill of my catechized young men whom I armed who went to rescue you and your people. Save only that which the young men have eaten. And also the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre. Were Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre worshippers of the God of Abram? We're not told so. But remember, he was confederate with them. And the principle of confederation is equality. All states are equally uh, are, 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 are uh, formally equal at law in the way in which they cooperate with one another. Well, now, Abraham is quite prepared to forfeit one-tenth of the spoils of war himself. But he demands that those confederate with him, who may not have shared his life and worldview, Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre, should be given their portion. Do you see how Abraham bends over backwards to do that which is just and righteous in the nitty-gritty where the rubber meets the road ethical problems of commerce and of warfare in this life here and now as his way, as God's son of worshipping the Lord God of heaven and earth. I'm almost through preaching. This is the way Abraham reacted when he received the blessing from this mysterious person, Melchizedek, the prophet, the priest, and the king of peace, who gave to Abraham bread and wine, and in all of that foreshadowed the greater presence of the greater Melchizedek 
our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, who would have us as his servants, also serve him in this life, in times of war, in times of economic disruption, by honouring him, by keeping the Ten Commandments, all of them, especially thou shalt not steal, to his honour and to his glory. May Almighty God work in your heart and in mine that we too, by God's grace, may live as true children of Abraham and heirs according to the same promise and to see the importance of our greater Melchizedek, the greatest of all prophets, priests and kings, our Lord Jesus Christ, High Priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Amen.